Hi everyone, I'm Graham Smith and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast, brought to you by Republic. Republic campaigns for the abolition of the monarchy, of course, and this podcast series attempts to explore the various issues surrounding the monarchy and the democratic alternatives on offer. In each episode, I'll be speaking to a guest who has something interesting to say about the royals, the British constitution, or the principles behind the campaign for a republic. Last month, I caught up with Norman Baker, who, or should I say the Right Honourable Norman Baker, former MP and government minister and member of the Privy Council. Norman has recently brought out a new book, And What Do You Do?, which sets out a comprehensive account of all that's wrong with the monarchy. Hi Norman, welcome to the show. Hello, Graham, and uh, uh, nice to speak to you on the Queen's birthday. Indeed, yes, very topical. Um, so, uh, yeah, you've uh, you've recently written this book, um, and what do you do? Um, it's certainly uh, been an excellent read for a lot of Republicans that I know. Um, has this been something that you've always uh, thought of? You always, there's been a time when you've been a monarchist, or or simply haven't cared either way. I don't think I've ever been a monarchist and what I have felt for a very long time is that the monarchy is, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, an important part of our constitution. But unlike the House of Commons or the government or the House of Lords or our local councils or indeed even the NHS or the education system, it's not subject to the same objective scrutiny and consideration as those elements of the constitution. Indeed, the monarchy in many ways gets a free pass. There's still a level of deference, which is in my view, wholly inappropriate. Uh, there's an exemption from freedom of information for the royal family to almost a total degree. And uh, those two things together enable the royal family to continue to act in a way which is, in my view, undemocratic and not in the interest of this country. The monarchy, in my view, is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And uh, you uh, wrote this book just recently. It just came out, I think, before Christmas. Is there anything particularly that prompted you to write this now, or is it something that you've always wanted to uh, get into in, in a lot more detail? Well, I've always felt there was um, a need for a book to be written. I mean, go back a long way. You had um, Willie Hamilton writing My Queen and I, um, which was the nearest a parliamentarian before me got to writing anything at all. Uh, I know from my time in Parliament that the monarchy was hardly ever discussed. It was hardly ever discussed partly because politicians are afraid of going to the subject, but also partly because it's very difficult to do so. You have to find a, an obscure hook. I think I introduced the only debate on the royal family in my time in Parliament in 18 years. And in order to do so, I had to refer to a 1993 Treasury document. And that was, that was a hook I used to get into the subject. So it is kind of off limits, which is ridiculous. So I've long felt there's a need for an overarching book which looks at the royal family and all its aspects. Willie Hamilton did quite well in the politics of it. But that goes back to the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, there was an excellent book from Philip Hall on royal finance in the late 1990s. But I personally felt that no one had actually covered the entire subject in a, in, a, in a way that needed to be done. And that's why I wanted to write the book. And I've been collecting material on, on the royals before I was an MP, certainly while, while I was an MP. And indeed, after I was uh, no longer an MP. And it's clear to me that the picture which... The, the 
composite picture which emerges is not one that's flattering to the royal family. You said at your introduction that um, it was a book which uh, Republicans would be interested in. Actually, the feedback I've had is um, quite a lot of people who would have regarded themselves as monarchists are, are horrified by some of the revelations in my book mm. and have changed their views. Well, I think that, absolutely, and I think that's the the power of any book, and particularly yours, which I think is quite compelling, that uh, it, and this is one of the big challenges that we face, is that so many people haven't heard all this detail, and they don't know all this, and, and so they, I guess, support the monarchy because they don't see any of the problems with it. So, uh, as you said, it's, it, there are, it is part of the problem and not, not part of the solution. And um, when people do read books like yours, um, minds are changed. Um, and we'll come on to some of that, uh, some of those revelations in a moment. I mean, one of the interesting things that you wrote early on in the book is, <laughs> is uh, your uh, reasons for joining the Privy Council. Can you tell us about the Privy Council and, and why you decided to take up the offer to, to join it? Well, this was um, uh, <laughs> this was a phone call I had from um, Nick Clegg, who was then Deputy Prime Minister. And uh, Nick didn't formally ring me very often. I would chat to him quite a lot, but it was very rare he put a phone call through to me. So I was slightly surprised. And um, after a couple of minutes' conversation about nothing in particular, he asked me if I wanted to join the Privy Council. I'm afraid I laughed. Um, <laughs> this was um, a little unexpected, but what happens in, in politics is that uh, honours come up with the the rations. I mean, you know, the Lib Dems in government and the Tories have a certain number of positions, whether it's in the House of Lords or whether it's in OBEs or Privy Council membership or whatever, or knighthoods. And um, they kind of dole them out. I mean, it's not based on merit or anything else. It's based on just, um, you know, pure patronage, really. Uh, I think in the Lib Dems, we ended up in the parliamentary party with more sirs than we did women at one point, mm. which is clearly absurd. So I, I said to, I thought about it, and I thought, well, what a lot of nonsense a Privy Council is. And, I, you know, although I'd studied it a little bit in my parliamentary time, I didn't know that much about it. So I was quite interested to see what actually happened. Um, so I thought, on balance, I would I would I would uh, go along with this. The other thing which I wanted to do, of course, was to um, to join to annoy the Tories because um, um, they clearly thought I was uh, well. They knew my views on the monarchy and the idea that um, the thing they would angle for, they'd love to be in a privy council, some of them, and that the idea that I would get there first uh, would annoy them intensely. So that's one of the reasons I accepted it. <laughs> um. And the other thing that really struck me, I guess, and this goes back to, I think, when you were a councillor, was this, um, your um, account of a, of a royal visit. And I, I think this really struck me that the, the, there's a huge gulf between the public perception of royal visits and how important they are and yes. what actually might happen when they turn up. And I think this might not be the most crucial point of the argument, but I think it goes to the the heart of this complete um, disconnection between the reality and the, the fantasy. I mean, can you uh, yes, sort of I tell mean, us the, about that? The, the visit itself, as you say, was relatively unimportant uh, in all regards. But what was important and is important is the complete failure of the press to report accurately what actually happens. Uh, the, the press in this country does not 
serve us well when it comes to the royal family. Uh, they either are highly intrusive, for example, you know, buzzing above someone's house and taking photographs through their bedroom window, which actually happened with Harry, uh, which is completely unacceptable, or they're obsessing about trivia as to what colour nail varnish Kate's wearing or some nonsense like that. And by the way, doing so in a rather sexist way, going in about women's dresses and nail varnish and not bothering about what men and women uh, we're, we're wearing so that you know the press doesn't doesn't do its job properly the press doesn't look at how much the royal family is costing us it doesn't look at the exemption from freedom of information it doesn't look at a whole range of things which is why i wanted to cover them in my book and on this occasion and on all, all royal occasions uh, the story of the royal visit is is basically written in advance just as you would write a, a theatre review in advance without seeing the play. Um, the royal personage is always glowing, uh, the crowd's always enthusiastic, they're always well received. Uh, the only things that change are the locations and the weather. And uh, this was a case when the Queen and Prince Philip visited Burgess Hill, just outside my constituency at the time, to open a letter centre, which I'd been invited to go along to by the Lib Dem leader of uh, Mid-Sussex District Council. And uh, yeah, if the Queen felt she shouldn't be opening leisure centres, I'd have some sympathy with that. It's a bit beneath her, really, frankly. But anyway, she was there. And what struck me as astonishing was the sheer lack of grace. Now, she may have had an off day. We all have off days. But she simply appeared from behind the curtain on a raised platform, walked along the raised platform, didn't once look at the crowd, uh, had her back to the crowd as she pulled the string to uh, reveal the plaque, saying she'd opened the leisure centre turned on her heel and went back again without saying a single word or looking at the crowd once. And there was a kind of small, sycophantic ripple of applause. And that was it. I mean, I have to say, if a politician or anyone else, um, you know, a celebrity or anyone else had behaved in that way, they'd have been slaughtered in the press. But none of that hmm. appeared in the local press. Now, as I say, the Queen may have had an off day. I mean, we all have off days. But, you know, really, if you're in public life, you cannot behave like that and get away with it, no. except they do. I mean, I think it chimed with me that, uh, I mean, with other stories, anecdotes and so on, that, um, where the royals do really just sort of turn up and, uh, uh, do the bare minimum and go again. But I mean, it does also then cost the local council, um, quite a bit of money as well as the local police, of course, for providing well, it does. security. Uh, there's a certain arrogance involved in, in, in these, um, in these visits. Um, you know, they, they feel that um, they are there and their subjects should be entirely grateful that they've turned up. We're all required to turn up miles in advance of um, any royal personage, just in case, mm. horror of horrors, uh, someone turns up after the person from the royal family in question. Uh, no one's allowed to sit down. Uh, in this leisure centre, there was a, an old lady who was basically falling over from the heat. And uh, I tried to get her a seat and was told by one of the royal flunkies that no one sits down in the presence of the Queen, although the Queen wasn't even there at the time. So this this kind of medieval nonsense uh, carries on. And obviously your, your book does cover a lot of ground, And um, but if I were to ask you to sort of pin it down, what's your main objection to uh, to having a monarchy and a hereditary head of state? Well, I mean, I think there is a philosophical argument, as I've just set out, and and uh, that's, that's uh, an intellectual position which I think is difficult to rebut. The trouble with a monarchy of any sort is that uh, you, you take what comes up with, the, with the, the hereditary nature of this. So you could end up with someone who is um, diligent. I mean, I think, to be fair to the Queen, she's quite diligent and has done her best in her own way 
over over her reign. But I mean, what a difference that is to Edward VIII. I mean, Edward VIII mm. was basically a Nazi. And uh, I suppose he'd been uh, king during the war. There's some evidence, which I set out in my book, that he was actually, um, Baldwin took the opportunity to get rid of him on the basis of the Mrs. Simpson argument. And it wasn't just about her, it was about getting out, him out of the way before mm. war started. You could have someone like um, um, William IV, who was, who was reasonably um, diligent and, and caring and spent almost quite a bit of public money. And what a contrast with... Um, you know, other others in the in the royal history, George IV, who was uh, rather different. So I mean, it, you know, it comes. You, know, you can't you can't guarantee the best person for the job. The idea that the best person always occupies the throne by hereditary nature is just absurd. Clearly, hmm. and part of what you touch on is the the way in which it's sort of pervasive right the way through our society in, in terms of the anthem, the oaths, you know, citizenship oaths and all these local dignitaries that will turn up at, you know, sort of whether it's Remembrance Day or an opening or something and then you've got the Lord's Lieutenants. I mean, is that... It's all, all, all unelected, of course. And no yeah, one's is elected. That part, <laughs> part of the problem is it's so pervasive and so sort of, does it affect our, our culture and our society? In a way? Yeah, it's getting worse, actually, in some ways. It's getting worse because, you know, the oath of allegiance, which um, people who, who want British citizenship have to now take, and these stupid questions have to learn like, the name of the Queen's Corgis or whatever. I mean, this, is, this was a, a relatively new innovation from the Labour government about 2004. Um, you know, royal wills that used to be sealed, they now are sealed. You know, we're actually going backwards in some in some respects, rather than rather than forwards. Um, so there's quite a lot to do to un to unpick all this. But you know, let's take the national anthem for example, which I cover in my book, um, "God Save the Queen." A national anthem should, by definition, be something which the country can unite around. That's what it should be there for. Um, it should be something which, um, you know, and something ideally, which is a good tune, rather than the dirge we have. Take the Marseillaise, fantastic tune. And I think every French citizen is proud of singing the Marseillaise. You take a, take another one like um, Canada O Canada, which is not particularly, uh, you know, stirring, but everybody can agree with the sentiments in that particular uh, that particular verse, because they all believe that it should be in Canada and Canada's country and, and so on. That's where they are. But our national anthem, in order to feel it's appropriate for you as an individual, you have to A, believe in God, and B, believe in uh, the monarchy. And uh, why should you have to do those two things in order to share the national anthem? Why should you have to do those? Britain is almost unique in having the head of state mentioned in the national anthems doesn't apply anywhere else certainly not well not anywhere else that's democratic certainly um no i mean I think, maybe apply in north korea i have no idea <laughs> yeah i mean i think that um it struck me i think the country isn't mentioned until like the fifth verse or something so uh of course part of the country scotland is mentioned in a rather adverse way so it's, yes. it just seems completely inappropriate for um for this day but, but these 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 historical anachronisms continue you look at um you look at the order of the order of preference um you know in terms of nuclear bunker for example well the queen's top of that but then there's a whole lot of other people you know kind of duke's sons and bishops and everybody else is unelected the prime minister's way down that list you know we've still got this um, maintenance of, of almost a kind of medieval approach to approach to life and of course the honour system the Queen is the fount of all honour uh, apparently you know mm. and, and, and they're handed out in order to reinforce 
the structure we have in this country rather than to change it. They reinforce the status quo. And the honours, I mean, uh, how does it reinforce this? I mean, it's often said that um, there's a kind of a hierarchy and, um, you know, you have the ordinary sort of hoi polloi, you know, people like me, maybe if I was ever offered one, uh, would be offered an MBE. And, um, uh, you know, if you are well connected or perhaps given a large donation to a political party, you might be getting a knighthood. I mean, is that broadly that's how, how it, it is. always works? Uh, mm. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, the the um, that's that's illegal, but um, no one's ever prosecuted for it. Um, but I've got some bad news for you, Graham. You won't be getting an honour anytime soon. I have to tell you. No, uh, well, I think I'd probably <laughs> turn it down if I, if I was from offered the, from the palace. Um, but no, I mean, the, the whole thing is 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 based on um, this. This it goes back to um, thirteen was it thirteen forty eight? I think when um, when the king at the time decided to introduce uh, the order of the garter, and it's all just and nothing's been abolished. We've all got these ridiculous titles, which you know, which which have carried on down the centuries. None, none of them have been abolished. And there's been no attempt to recognise modernity. I'm not against honours as such. I mean, I, I mean, I think we should honour people in society who've done a. A good service, and indeed they've been talking about how to honour the people in the NHS at the moment. But, you know, command of the British Empire, what is that? I mean, what is the British Empire? I think Ronnie Barker suggested it was Rockall about 40 years ago, and that's, uh, <laughs> and that's where we are. I mean, commander, who are they commanding? This is all nonsense, and, and you know, the order of the thistle and all these sorts of things. I mean, it's just bizarre. But also, some of these, like OBs, MBs and CBs, are relatively recent, aren't they? Are they not... Well, there was there was an the attempt to um, yeah, there was an attempt. The BEM, the British Empire Medal. I mean, John Major, um, who of course came from a grammar school and was was in that sense quite classless, wanted to try to reform the honour system to make it more modern. Mm. Uh, he ran into a wall of opposition from the palace, of course, as you would expect, and from the establishment generally. Not least of all because the establishment expects to benefit from the honour system itself by mm. something coming up with the rations. So all he managed to do was abolish the British Empire Medal. Um, which he did in about 1995. Well, that was reinstated by David Cameron in about 2013, 2014. So even that uh, minuscule advance has been reversed. And of course, this extends to the royal family. I mean, they have. Oh, they got more honours. On they got enough honours to sink a battleship. I mean, they, they they come up with the rations. I mean, they just it's absurd. Prince Charles, at the last count, had 31 medals. Hey, what, what's he done to deserve that? The last thing he did militarily was combined a coastal minesweeper about 25, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, he's got 31 medals. He's, he's kind of an admiral and, a, and, a, and whatever else is, air commodore. He's, he's top of the rank for all, for all the services. I mean, they just, they just hand them out to themselves. They've got well over 100 between them medals. Um, and, and, you know, there's even an order of the royal family, um, medal which which is given out simply if you're a female that's how you qualify for it being a female member of the royal family and you get a medal for that um britain's not unique i think um tonga does the same thing so we're in good company um you know why why what are these medals for i mean i wonder if um if if any of the royal family ever think to themselves i've done nothing to deserve this i I will not accept this medal you know, when does that ever happen? I mean, okay, one or two of them have. Harry's been out in, in um, Afghanistan. Prince Andrew was, was genuinely involved in military action in the Falklands. Yep. But, I mean, that's about it. I mean, what are the rest of the medals for? I mean, Prince Charles must be one of the few people in the country who decides which medals to wear when he goes out. And he was uh, promoted in all the armed forces on his, yes. I think, 
uh, 40th, 50th and 60th birthdays by his mother. So this strikes me as particularly bizarre, arcane and not the sort of thing you'd expect in a modern democracy. No, I mean, they get, it's a birthday present. I mean, it's absurd. Here are some people, here's a lollipop lady who's been 50 years uh, on some crossing somewhere in, uh, in all weathers in the, in the winter and in the cold and the driving rain to get kids cross, crossing a road safely. And after 50 years, she gets an MBE. You know, Prince Charles gets um, to be an admiral because it's his birthday. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, can we really justify this sort of system? Hmm. And um, I think there's a, it seems to me, I mean, you said before that <clears throat> I suggested that people get knighthoods for donations and you, you commented that that was illegal. But I mean, it strikes me that there is an element of corruption without sort of making any direct accus <laughs> accusations. But it does seem like there's a, an awful lot of overlap between supporters of um, parties and also you know, people that have been active within parties, parliamentary parties, and the highest honours, including peerages. Yes, that's absolutely true. And if you look at the um, uh, correlation between uh, donations to the Blair government or to the Cameron government and um, subsequent honours handed out, there is a very high degree of overlap. Um, and that cannot be coincidence. And one of the problems with um, the involvement of the monarchy in our society is that uh, politicians will use the monarchy as a kind of friendly sort of cover to um, to pretend everything is somehow above politics because the honours are handed out not by politicians, but the honours are handed out by the Queen or by Prince Charles or Prince William increasingly, so it looks to be neutral. But of course it's not. So the, the politicians are very happy on occasion to hide behind the royal family mm. um, to cover up their <coughs> dirty work, really. Now, I forget who said it. I think it was Tony Benn, but... Uh they said that even the most reformist prime minister becomes a monarchist once they enter Downing Street because they, they suddenly realise how much power that system gives them. And I think, I'm right in saying that this goes, this is power, this is the royal prerogative powers, which are, as I understand it, exercised through the Privy Council, which I think you've witnessed uh, happen. Uh, yes. And, um, I mean, it's quite an astonishing level of, I don't know whether it's secrecy or simply secrecy by omission you know they simply don't go around telling people what they've been doing in the privy council is I mean, that strikes me as a real problem well when i was inducted to the privy council um i was there to witness uh, a normal well if you can call it normal a normal privy council meeting taking place and uh, there were decisions taken uh, by well officially by the queen but all she did was say approved or referred that's all she ever does uh, those two words at a privy council meeting um, and there are propositions put to her by the, the cabinet ministers who are who are there um, and there were decisions being taken which i thought were ones which first of all should be public and secondly should be taken by parliament uh, and not by you know, this obscure body meeting in private um, i did actually persuade the government at the time in about 2001 to put all the Privy Council decisions in the House of Commons library, which was a major step forward. But mm. until then, they'd been, they'd been secret. But there's a whole lot of stuff taken in Privy Council, which really shouldn't be. And there's an argument, frankly, that Privy Council should simply not exist anymore. It doesn't do anything particular, which could not be done by by Parliament. And, and I was reading the papers only last week that because Parliament wasn't able to to meet very effectively because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. There's a, a suggestion that more 
business will be put through the Privy Council. Well, that's totally undemocratic. I mean, are we going back 500 years? And this is the I, I, this is what frustrates frustrates me a little bit when when I mean there was an argument a few years back when Jeremy Corbyn became leader and it was suggested he join the Privy Council, which is one of the few times that it gets any kind of um, attention and it, it often gets referred to in the media as being a purely ceremonial role, but it clearly isn't, is it? I mean, there's real decisions that make a difference to people's lives being made in these yes. meetings. Yes, I mean uh, decisions which relate to. The Channel Islands, decisions relating to universities, decisions relating to um, some judicial functions for what was the Empire and is still now part of the Commonwealth, but decisions as well to do with government business over here. There was one decision, I can't remember exactly what it was, I think it's in my book, to do with Iraq, uh, which was pushed through the Privy Council. Again, that was highly inappropriate in my view, so it's used as a kind of backdoor channel to push things through in a way that should simply not happen. And it can be abolished. I mean, essentially, if if it were abolished, what would where would those decisions be made in Parliament or in Cabinet or? Well, it'd be a bit of both. It, one of those two things. I mean, you either take it in, in Cabinet and it should be subject to freedom of information and proper open reporting, or you take it to Parliament and Parliament takes decisions. I mean, it's not revolutionary to suggest that. That's mm. how most of the world works. And it started off, I guess, as the that was the Cabinet, wasn't the Privy Council? It was the King's Cabinet, as it were. And it was the King's advisors. Yeah, King's Advice is going back far enough. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of evolved from, from there, I suppose, or not evolved. And I guess that all sort of tied up in this sort of weird way in which we've evolved um, from those days is the, the notion that the it's often said that the Queen is above the law. Um, and you sort of touched on this in the book about not just the Queen, but the royals generally. And it, I, I think the, the legally, I don't know whether it's true that the Queen is actually above the law, but there's, all of them seem to behave as if they are, unless it's a parking fine or a, uh, a speeding ticket. Well, the Queen is above the law uh, legally because mm-hmm. uh, any any action is taken in her name. And it's difficult to have Regina versus Regina, is it not, in the court? So, I mean, she is above the law. I mean, if she wants to murder someone, then no doubt she could do so with impunity. And certainly when she was caught not wearing a seatbelt, uh, there was no question that uh, any prosecution following that. Um, some of them behave as if they were about the law when they aren't, and I, and I refer to the incident which you called Gategate, um, which was uh, an appropriate term for uh, the rather unpleasant and uh, boorish Prince Andrew, who couldn't get the uh, the gates at Windsor Great Park to open and simply smashed his way through, causing a bill of about £80,000, I think, for the Crown Estates, which then duly meant that the taxpayer paid for that. So uh, that sort of arrogant behaviour, I think, is is uh, is very distasteful. But it's also the, the behaviour whereby, um, for example, it was uh, Princess Michael of Kent, who's wandering by a shop, um, a jeweller shop in, in, in central London, saw an ivory figure in the window, thought that was rather nice. She went in and said, um, basically, hello, I'm a member of the royal family, can I have that uh, for nothing, please? 
and Julie got it for nothing. The, the arrogance of these people, um, they expect wow. everything for nothing. They expect their mm. um, bathrooms to be fitted out and people should be grateful that they've been able to leave their tiles in, in their bathroom. I mean, it's really quite shocking how they behave and they don't, they don't want to pay for anything. Prince Charles mm. in particular doesn't want to pay for anything. And on the one occasion when um, Roy Strong presented him with an invoice for uh, for the gardener he'd employed at Highgrove, well, Roy Strong was then sent to, sent to outer Siberia and never to be seen again. Which is extraordinary. I mean, they, obviously, they've got you know, so many millions of pounds between them that they can pay for anything many times over. Yet there's this extraordinary sense of entitlement that uh, everything comes for free. And I'm not quite sure what they do with their millions, given how much they get for nothing. But um, I mean, well, they're they squirreling away. Thing, uh, <laughs> yes. What do they want it for? It's very odd. It seems almost like a status symbol. But I, uh, the gate gate thing was quite extraordinary because of the acquiescence of the police. And yes, um, you know, this was. You know, they, they came back to me when I reported Prince Andrew to the police for criminal damage because he deliberately rammed his vehicle into gates, which were not his property. And they came back and said, well, we don't normally get involved in accidents which don't involve um, uh, any kind of injury or death. And I was like, well, this wasn't an accident, but they just wouldn't have, you know, no. didn't want to know. And that's quite an extraordinary uh, action. And, of course, it's been suggested that in the more serious case against Andrew regarding his relationship with Epstein that... Um, Virginia Roberts uh, made a complaint to the Metropolitan Police about um, uh, alleged offences in London and they again said uh, declined to investigate which is quite an extraordinary state of affairs and now we have Andrew essentially avoiding um, the legal processes in the United States Yes, I mean, I think the, the police have not covered themselves in glory on, on the, the, the events that you describe. To be fair to them, they don't always um, take that um, that view. And there was an occasion when uh, I remember the public caught uh, Prince, well, caught, I mean, f- photographed Prince Charles uh, shooting at Sandringham. Hmm. And which, of course, they're very keen to pretend they don't do it. They keep all their shooting and hunting well, well hidden from the public because they know it's unpopular. And uh, Charles then called the police because he'd had a photograph taken, and the police on that occasion said, uh, "There's no offence being committed. Uh, the man was in the public footpath and told to take a photograph." So, hmm. you know, on occasion they do the right thing. I think. Yeah, but I, I guess the other one was that more recently was Prince Philip in the car crash, which, again, I, th- I think that anybody yeah. else, even at his age, would have been facing some kind of uh, criminal action because that was quite obviously dangerous driving. He had no reason to pull out into the road and um, very came very close to killing three people. So uh, and yet they just sort yes. of brushed it aside. Yes, although uh, you could argue that um, they may have said to him, I don't know, they may have said to him, if you surrendered your licence, we'll let it go. And mm. in, a, in a way, if you say that to someone who's that age, who's not Prince Philip, then perhaps that's the right outcome to mm. yeah, to perhaps. secure. So I, I can't get too worked up about that. I was much more amused by the private eye take on that when you had um, uh, a photograph of Prince Philip next to uh, Andrew, uh, which was published shortly after Andrew's uh, terrible interview with the BBC, which did him so much damage mm. and uh, private eyes bubbles coming out of their mouths was uh, Andrew saying uh, that my interview was rather a car crash and Philip saying that's my boy <laughs> yeah and I, it, it is that arrogance and that sense of impunity that they can get away with whatever they want that uh, is quite galling and I mean on that a big part of 
the issue around this is royal funding as well, because we've sort of yes. touched on the fact that they want everything uh, paid for. I mean, they they claim to be forty million pounds to the taxpayer every year, and they try and spin it every time about you know dividing it amongst sixty five million people and so on. Our figures are. Our estimate is around three hundred forty-five million pounds. You've obviously looked at this in your yes. book. I mean, what do you think is the the total damage to the to the taxpayer every year? Well, we don't know exactly, but it's not it's not a cup of tea or whatever it is that the um, yeah. trying to pretend it is for the public at large. The security bill alone is runs into uh, you know hundreds hundreds of millions of pounds, mm. and um, we, we we're providing security on a, on, a, on, a, on a kind of weird basis that. Princess Anne, um, for example, doesn't seem to think it's very important to have security, although she was actually subject to quite a nasty incident in the 1970s, which she handled quite well. And yet Andrew wants a security for his daughters, more as a status symbol than anything else. We've got security for people like Princess Alice. I mean, who is she? You know, I mean, they, they, they have these things, really as status symbols, costing a fortune. If you have one member of the royal family living in a house and you have security 24 hours a day, that's probably half a million pounds a year in terms of mm. the number of officers you have to have and the shift work and everything else. Um, you know, it soon mounts up, uh, this, and it's completely unnecessary in most cases. I mean, there's been no example, this is what the role um, security guard, Di Davis, has said, there's no example in his lifetime where a minor role has been threatened in this way. I just mm. simply don't need it. I mean, you know, the days of the IRA and so on have gone by and large. Mm. So, I mean, I think the security thing is, is one thing, but the if you look at the overall bill what you can say very clearly is it's way in excess of the cost of monarchies in other countries way in excess and it's not just the direct costs of, of um, supporting um, the queen and the, the royal family and their duties nor is it even in security it's also the tax exemptions which which apply it's the fact that no inheritance tax was paid when uh, when the queen mother died for example and the treasury lost probably 25 million pounds as a consequence of that it's the fact that between 1952 and 1993 i think it was uh, the queen was exempt from income tax as was prince charles um, there was no taxation on her dividend income and I think it was the Mail on Sunday, calculated that over that 40 years, she had benefited to the tune of about £800 million simply from the exemption from dividend income taxation. I mean, it's a huge sums of money. Mm. Um, and then you've got the situation whereby they are able to veto laws, effectively, that they don't like. People aren't aware of this. This is one of the, 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 the astonishing facts that I found out. Um, I didn't know. And, and certainly those who read my book found it quite astonishing. They think that um, you have you know, the royal approval comes at the end of a piece of legislation, which is a rubber stamp, which it is. What they don't know is there's something called Queen's Consent, whereby the Queen has to authorise a piece of legislation to be started. And she's able to influence that if it affects her personal interest, not a professional or, or, or you know, kind of state interest, but their personal interests. So you take the Animal Welfare Act, uh, 2006 and I sat on the bill committee for that at the time in parliament that created a position for RSPCA inspectors to go on to private land where they suspected that um, um, some abuse of animals was taking place there's an exemption for the Queen's private property which they insisted on why and why did we agree to that 
I'm not suggesting that the Queen uh, or anyone on her land is causing abuse of animals, but why should they be exempt from that provision? You know, it's quite wrong that they should be able to influence legislation to to benefit themselves personally, as they clearly do. And this is also the Charles as Duke of Cornwall, of course, which is yes, I mean, uh, so-called princess consent, which is a, which yeah. is a, a you know, it's got no constitutional basis whatsoever. The Queen's mm-hmm. consent, you could argue that because the Queen is. Um, Legally, everything is hers in in the sense that um, she you know she she any legal action is taken on her on her behalf, regina versus something. Mm. You could argue that um, there's no there's a there's a case for Queen's consent, although I don't accept it. But there's no argument whatsoever for Prince's consent. I mean, Prince Charles has effectively no constitutional position. He should not be having any privileges whatsoever from the state. He also has been since um, I think the early 1990s receiving red boxes. You know, so the ministerial red boxes with with papers in them. Williams yes. now receiving those. You know that, that that why they have no constitutional position. There is one monarch at one time, and it's not Charles. It's not William. Yes, this is I think something which we um, pushed. One of our volunteers pushed the cabinet office for about three years to release the precedent book, which is the guide on how to run the cabinet. And it revealed in there that Prince Charles receives all cabinet papers and. Um, which I understand is more than most cabinet members. I think there's a, a hierarchy of who receives what according to their, yes. their need to see it. So, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. He sees absolutely everything. Yes, I mean, much of it, much of it must be dead boring, to be honest with you. Um, mm. But, yes, yeah, so he, he has access to whatever he wants, as far as I can tell. And, of course, he's used that to mm. argue for his own particular uh, obsessions. And uh, the Guardian... Uh, for many years pushed to get these so-called spider letters released whereby we found out that Prince Charles was trying to lobby ministers behind the scenes for his own pet subject whether it was uh, better armour and protection for our armed forces or whether it was to help um, promote homeopathy or whatever the whatever the case was and again it's entirely inappropriate in my view for uh, Prince Charles to to do that. I mean, uh, you know, if he wants to lobby as a member of the public, let him do so openly. But um, you you can't. You know, what what Charles wants to do is to be able to influence everything behind the scenes and yet appear to be completely neutral uh, in in front of the cameras. You know that's not acceptable. But this was this was the argument that Dominic Grieve, who was the Attorney General at the time of the Guardian case, he said something along the lines of, "If we release these letters, then the public may not." Um, like what they read essentially said i think the the, the argument was that uh, the appearance of neutrality would be lost and as if <laughs> surely the constitution requires them to actually be neutral not just appear to be neutral in public yes it's the same thing with um, royal wills i mean when when um, the sealing of royal wills began in about 1911 uh, it was allegedly to uphold the dignity of the crown well the dignity of the crown is upheld by behaving in a dignified manner mm. uh, not by behaving in an undignified manner and then covering it up afterwards now, I mean, towards the end of your book, you talk about, um, you know, sort of we are where we are. And at the very least, we ought to scale this down to something akin to a European monarchy. But I mean, ultimately, if we, uh, if you and I sort of were given the job of rewriting the Constitution, I think we'd uh, agree on wanting a republic. I mean, what sort of alternative? To me, it seems fairly obvious. I mean, not least because our nearest neighbours uh, do this. But I mean... What was the alternative uh, arrangement that you would support? Well, I mean, I think you need a, a separation between the political leader in the country and the and the and a kind of figurehead leader of a country. I think it's dangerous when you have someone like Trump exercising both roles 
in America, and I don't actually think the French system is Macron, nothing against Macron particularly, but where it's right. Um, I, I, I prefer the, the model where you were someone like Mary Robinson in Ireland, who performed, I think, a very good task as, as president over there without interfering with the politics of the country. And, and if you like, that's the kind of model which, which seems to me to make sense. I mean, looking forward, I mean, the public opinion polls clearly demonstrate that the public at large believe at some point the monarchy will disappear. That's what all mm. the polls show. Um, Charles III, so will he be the last king? I mean, the fact is that the monarchy, from its own point of view, needs to modernise. But every time there's an attempt to modernise it, Princess Diana tried it, um, Harry's tried it, um, actually, the waters close over and they try and carry on as before, but the tree that doesn't bend is going to, at some point, is going to break. And the modernization is not taking place, and we're now faced with, um, and this is the point about hereditary nature of the royal family, you you know, you can't choose who you have, it's, it's next in line. And we've got Charles next, who's who's over 70, regarded by many people as a bit weird, and, and certainly with odd views, and has been damaged, I think, by the way he sought to influence government and by the whole history of Diana and his excesses generally in terms of travel and so on. Then you've got William, who's regarded as dull and boring. Um, uh, you know, there isn't there isn't very much there to inspire the public, if you like, in traditional sense. And I think you're right that there is a sense of loyalty, in a sense, to the Queen, which um, prevents people from making um, anti-royal points or even discussing the future of the monarchy. But I think that will change when um, when the Queen goes and we have Charles. So I think we've uh, run out of time there, but thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, you're very welcome, Graham. And um, and today's a very special day, as you know. It's uh, my mum's birthday. <laughs> Excellent. Well, happy birthday to you, mum. And um, obviously your book is And What Do You Do?, which is available online, um, uh, Amazon and other online retailers. Um and you said that the audiobook is due out this week, is that correct? Yes, the hardback came out late last year, it's selling quite well, it's gone for a reprint. Uh, the audiobook is out uh, on Thursday, uh, Thursday the 23rd, and uh, 23rd of April, and there'll be a paperback out later in the year, which will be an updated, revised version of the hardback. Excellent. And for our listeners, I'll put a link to the book and audiobook on our website at republic.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Abolish the Monarchy. New episodes are out each fortnight and you can find all our podcasts on the website or through Apple iTunes, their podcast app and on Spotify. And of course, don't forget, you can find out more about Republic at republic.org. UK, including ways you can support the campaign, whether by joining, donating or getting involved. <laughs>